HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about the food policy issues that shape our everyday experiences of growing, buying, and eating food. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network, and I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. Today, I am pleased to have Michael Dimmick joining me. He is the president of the California-based organization Roots of Change. Michael is focused on food and agriculture since 1989 with a work history spanning the private and nonprofit sectors both here in the U.S. and abroad. He's a former chairman of Slow Food USA and a member of Slow Food International's board of directors and a recognized advocate for transformation of food and farming systems. Michael, it's great to have you joining us. Really nice to be here, Kim. Thank you. Are you calling from Berkeley today? I'm actually calling. Yeah, I'm actually calling from our offices in Oakland. Okay, um, right next to Berkeley. Yep, we're. Uh, but I was in San Francisco this morning. So it's so it's interesting because you're um, you're right at ground zero in the soda wars, some might say. And our topic today is going to be food policy and political change. That's perfect. We are in the midst of it. <laughs> Two big campaigns: San Francisco and Berkeley. Um, so before we, we turn into that topic, I did I want to hear a little bit more about your organization, Roots of Change, its mission, history, and some of the work you've been focusing on. So can you, you start off giving us a general background of Roots of Change and what you're working on now? Absolutely. Well, uh, Roots of Change is a think-and-do tank, um, and we say that our, our mission, uh, which has evolved over time, but currently is to uh, create roadmaps to victory for the food movement, and uh, we believe that uh, more unified power um, in the food movement is, is what's needed to overcome the resistance uh, at the policy level. Um, and uh, the history is that we were started by a group of foundations uh, back in the early part of, this, uh, of the 2000s, um, uh, foundations that have been investing in sustainable agriculture for decades and, and not seeing the change, the accelerated change they, they, they had hoped for. So they decided to create a strategic fund 
and Roots of Change was uh, the result of that. Um, and our focus uh, was to create a vision um, that a group of leaders could uh, pursue in, in pursuit of a sustainable food system. Originally, the idea was by the year 2030 to, to create a sustainable food system, and we still stand with the idea that by 2030 that the, the basis of transformation has to be in place. Um, and we focused in the first many years until about 2011 building a base of uh, food policy-oriented groups up and down the state, activists who were working together at the local level, and we were able to change policies in San Francisco and Los Angeles to help those mayors come up with sustainable food policies, and also in San Diego. And at the same time, we piloted projects that showed how NGOs collaborating together could have large-scale impact. So we were one of the three places in the country um, that developed um, the uh, what what some call what we call here in California market match, where farmers markets offer low-income folks the ability to double their purchasing power around fruits, nuts, and vegetables if they bring their SNAP or WIC in. And so we developed the market match program in California and, and had 17 partners with the state of California NGOs, and we, then we joined with Fair Food Network in the central part of the United States, the Upper Midwest, and with Wholesome Wave on the Eastern Seaboard to come up with some frameworks that were adopted by the, by the federal government uh, to create the, the new um, Food Insecurity Nutrition Incentives Program, $100 million program. Right, and we're so gonna, that's the kind of work we do. Right, yeah. we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Um, that is a that that food incentive that uh, incentive programs at farmers markets certainly near and dear to my heart. With New York City having one of the long-standing programs in that area as well, health bucks dating back to two thousand and six, and I think that's it really right. is a great example of um, of pilot programs and pro projects on the ground influencing federal policy. But before we talk about that, I want to hear about. Your um, it's, it, during this trajectory of the work of Roots of Change, the California Food Policy Council was created. And can you describe yes. how that entity works and in your work as a consensus builder, what some of the, the challenges and lessons maybe you've encountered in that context? Yes. So um, as I mentioned in our early, you know, for between 2007 and 11, we spent a lot of time and energy and resources building local groups. And by 2011, we realized that um, one entity alone could not change uh, policy in California. We also did a deep analysis of the food system and, and looked at the intervention points and realized that all these local bodies uh, were a nascent um, force that could convince policymakers uh, to, to change things in the state and then eventually nationally. So um, we asked the stakeholders we've been working with, and we, I think we funded or supported about the, the development of about 17 of these local groups. There are now 30 in the state. And in 2011 and 12, uh, we asked the questions of them, would you, do you think it would be great to have a, a statewide food policy council? Because the state of California had done a study and said it might be good to have a statewide food policy council in California. So we met with the Secretary of Agriculture and brought together 50 leaders uh, from up and down the state and some foundations and talked about forming a statewide food policy council and I, and it was roundly supported. So then in 2012 we brought um, 24 stakeholders uh, from the original groups to, to, to actually develop what you would call a constitution, a working document that defines our principles and practices. It took about a year for uh, big meetings and, and some regional meetings to forge that. In December 2012 the California Food Policy Council was officially launched. And um, we are a, a group that uh, has thresholds of agreement that have to be passed in order to get a policy 
or a document in the name of the council published. So uh, in March of 2013, we, we embarked on our first big project, which, the, which is the creation of the uh, what we know of as the uh, what we understand as the first state-based um, report on legislation related to food and farming. So the California uh, Food Policy Council put out this report in 2013 as a way to analyze the policies at the state level and to indicate to legislators what the food movement thought about those policies. We tracked 10 bills. Um, those bills, about half of them were actually signed by the governor, got through the process, and so we wrote an analysis. And that was the first time that's been done by the food movement in California, certainly, and we think nationally, um, to actually tell a state legislative body uh, what they were doing well and what they weren't doing well. And that result, that report was released on January 8th of 2014, so a few months after the end of the last year, and it resulted in legislators coming to us and saying, what kind of bills would you like to see happen? So then we ended up running a bill called AB 2385, which is the market match nutrition incentives bill, which was to build off the federal program you mentioned, we mentioned earlier. So anyway, what's interesting about this is um, there are different types of food policy councils in the state, and food systems alliances, different groups, different governance structures. And trying to get those synced up is our biggest challenge. For instance, Los Angeles has the largest food policy council in the state, but it's very hard for them to take a policy advocacy position because they have government officials and they're kind of prohibited from doing that. Whereas other places like Berkeley and Oakland or uh, up in Mendocino County and Humboldt County, we have much more politically proactive groups. So trying to get them into sync is our largest challenge, and it requires tons of negotiation around wording, and we're in the midst of that for the 2014 report. It's really interesting because the, the, the okay. issue of food policy councils, I mean, what you're talking about is one of the questions that comes up about food policy councils in general, which is how the strengths, the different strengths that come from different types of food policy councils and when they're more of an outsider entity vis-a-vis the government or when they're more officially linked with the government, and you're kind of working with both aspects of that and trying to build consensus across both of those types of entities. And and so now we're really, we are really getting into, you know, we, we say on the show that we like to engage the big questions that are raised by food policy. And our big question for today really is about, is the food movement a political force yet? And in talking about the report that you released in January of 2014, which really rated, I guess, the legislature's success and um, on what the on what your group had identified as food policy priorities for the year. Um, that was a very groundbreaking type of effort. And now we see that, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now, uh, in the second legislative cycle that your organization will be tracking and reporting on, there were some significant legislative actions around food. So in addition to the fate of AB 2385 around the Market Match program, which I want you to talk about. Can you can you talk about um, what some of the things were that Governor Brown signed into law? This year? Yeah, this year. Yeah, um, it's a it's an interesting mix. So there, I'll just to lay a little brown, groundwork. There were there were actually 23 bills we identified using a screen of 10 10. We have 10 uh, principles um, uh, of types of bills we'd like to see. We identified 23 that seemed to be really important to the California Food Policy Council members. And then we ended up selecting 15 of those for actual um, tracking. And um, the, the uh, interesting thing is that um, some bills that got passed, uh, so there were nine of the 15 actually have been signed by the governor. 
Um, some of the, the, the important ones, I, I would say, uh, there were two very, uh, very exciting environmental bills around the protection of bees, pollinators in the system. Um, one to, to, to basically require a more controls over neonicotinoids, and the other, um, to, which is a, a, a harmful pesticide or a pesticide that many, many scientific uh, studies have shown are harmful to bees. And the other was to create harbors of safety within public lands in the state of California. Um, there was a bill that protects the quality of farmers' markets to keep what we would, which are called resellers, out of the markets. There's yes, been some big we, problems with. And we actually talked about that. farmers' market fraud a little bit last week on our our show. Yes, it? <laughs> it's a problem, right? Uh, people get in there and say, "Oh, we're a farmer," and they're actually just reselling. So there's a, a new bill that's been signed that that increases the rates uh, that that stand. You know each purveyor has to, to give to the Farmers Market Association so that it goes to the state to actually regulate more, more closely. Um, there uh, was a, uh, the, you know, a bill on um, uh, some SNAP bills, bills that make it easier for folks to get access to uh, CalFresh, which is the equivalent of SNAP or food stamps in, in California, um, that have allowed, for instance, allowing students to get uh, access to food stamps that have been prohibited in the past, low-income students. Um, there are uh, there are one of the big bills that we are really interested in tracking is the creation of a new office within the State Department of of, of uh, Food and Agriculture. Um, it's called the Farm to Fork Office. So um, the same state report that that uh, suggested that a California Food Policy Council be formed also suggested that there be some sort of office within the Department of Food and Ag that would facilitate the linkages between local food producers and uh, and buyers and to promote healthy sustainable food and so that office uh, has now been established a bill was passed and uh, and uh, we think that will be a platform within the Department of Food and Ag to to uh, to build from many other kinds of projects moving forward yeah. um, so, so it's really interesting because what you're describing is a slate of legislation that runs the gamut of food policy issues which previously really weren't necessarily all seen as part of the same portfolio of interest when you're talking about bills that affect food security, pollinators, uh, food retail, healthy healthy food, healthy and sustainable food retail in the form of farmers markets, and then the farm to fork um, piece. Yeah. So it's fascinating to hear this holistic set of uh, policies that were, that were seen as part of an overall food package and that um, that you were talking about and advocating for as part of an overall food package, but it wasn't, you, you know, it wasn't a hundred percent. So, can you talk about some of right. the, the setbacks as well? I know there were some high-profile bills that didn't get passed, including yeah. the uh, soda warning label bill. Yes. So we've we've um, uh, Senator Monning from the Carmel region of California, Central Coast region, um, had has has been a real champion of of. Uh, bills or legislation that will lower the consumption of sweetened beverages in the state because we know what the impacts are on health. So he, he actually has had a bill pending or in the process which has been stuck in the process, which is an actual sweetened beverage tax at the state level. So as an alternative, because that's not got, it's not getting out of committees because it's being killed by the beverage industry. So what he did last year um, uh, is, is introduce a bill 1087, SB 1087, which would, uh, I'm sorry, not SB 1087, SB 1000 that would put a, a label, uh, basically a, a warning label on beverages. Well, that was killed again by the sweet beverage industry. They, I was actually up in Sacramento when they were lobbying. They were everywhere. You know, the, the big beverage companies had had lobbyists. They were spending tons of money, leaning on on legislators not to pass the bill. 
Um, there, there were also was a GM, uh, GMO labeling bill. Uh, we had, you know, as you know, tried to do a statewide initiative uh, two years ago. That did not pass. So uh, Senator Evans from Sonoma County actually um, tried to uh, and tried valiantly in many different ways to to do a labeling bill. Um, and those were both uh, bills that that you were able to have um, be part of your consensus uh, set of bills that you were tracking. Is that right? Yeah, they were. They were now. This is the interesting thing. This is how we're we're threading needle, getting back to the politics of the statewide food policy council. So we have more conservative districts and more progressive districts within the area. You know, so so um, really the rural districts where there are more farmers uh, uh, represented often uh, are more careful around, for instance, genetically engineered. So some of them, you know, look to the seeds as, as, as a, or genetic engineering as a future solution for problems that they are fearing. And so that would be a bill where we had. More um, uh, that would be what you would des- describe as uh, uh, a lack of full consensus. Consensus means everyone agrees. So on a bill like that, not everyone agreed. Actually, on the farmers market bill that 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 toughened the standards to keep uh, resellers out, there were there were because the fees were being raised. There were some rural regions up in the north, particularly where they get very few resources, and the farmers are of lower income up there. They they didn't think they were going to get enough that the regulators wouldn't really support them, so they weren't that supportive of that bill. So you know, there the the big issue is can we agree enough to to put forward 15 bills that we track? It doesn't mean that every member of the council supports that bill, but it means enough do that we think it's important and it makes our list. And the ones and it that dissent are able to express their dissent. Yes, they can express their dissent. Boy, they they do it. In fact, we have <laughs> footnotes in the current report that will indicate you know um, the you know bills that were that were more controversial. Mm-hmm. And um, so it is, that is, the, that is the big challenge for us. I mean, the, 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 the group consensus is that we would like to keep as large a tent as we possibly can because it has the most political force. Mm-hmm. And the more you shrink the tent, the less force you have because legislators want to get reelected. Therefore, you've got to have a big tent to, mm-hmm. to con- convince them that they're going to be electable again if they make a decision to back you on something. So, so that's the, that is the fine line that we're working with, and it is a, it is a challenge. You've got to have the patience of Job, but so mm-hmm. far we have it. So let me ask you, before we take a break, to, to take a step back and characterize all of this, because you've been working on these issues for such a long time, and uh, looking at this recent legislative cycle, would you say this progress is really significant, but is it significant enough, is my question, or are we still falling far short of the type of seismic changes that some would argue are needed in the food system? I would say that we're, we're not... I would say that um, we're making progress. Last year we tracked... 50% of the bills we tracked were signed by the governor. This year, it's uh, close to 60-something. So, so that's a good sign. Um, you know, uh, generally, I think that, and we actually, a member of the Food Policy Council, Rock, supported uh, last week, um, this week, actually, on Monday night, a, a, an assembly race debate around food systems issues, the first one we know of in California, where we had two assembly candidates sit down and talk food systems issues with a set of questions that the California Food Policy Council and others had generated uh, together, uh, members of the Food Policy Council uh, and others had generated for the candidates. And, you know, that... What you realize is that most political candidates do not even have the cognitive development of food systems enough in their brain to talk about it very well. There is a lot to be learned. So we have a long ways to go, but Mm -hmm. we're making progress. And so with that, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back and continue our conversation.
You are listening to It's Cold and Beautiful by Magical Mistakes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And we're back. Michael, I want to continue our conversation about the political power of the food movement and mention uh, that we know food has always been a political issue, but in talking about the effort to make food more of a voter issue, this is something certainly your organization is working on. There's a national effort now with the Food Policy Action Network what what do you see as the keys to making this something that voters see as an issue? It's a, Kim, that's an awesome question. I, I um, You know, it's funny because tonight I'm going to my first food policy action fundraising event in, in San Francisco, uh, honoring Nancy Pelosi, speaker, um, Tom Colecchio, and others will be there. Uh, and, and it's a really uh, exciting that at the national level now we have food policy action We we consider them uh, uh, an allied organization. We've not formalized that. Maybe that'll begin tonight. But um, I do think that the, it's a combination of things. Um, I, I, you know, you 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 understand from your work, your your history, uh, and participation in all of this that all politics are local, and in the end, uh, legislators respond to those people that elect them. And so, um, what we focus on is trying to move the the the. Uh, uh, large segments of the food policy uh, of the food movement into uh, to understand that they have to become politically act- active to make change. And so you can see, for instance, in the slow food movement, there's now a policy committee, and we we, mm-hmm. we collaborate with them very deeply in the state of California now, because they've been more foodie oriented and a celebration of biodiversity and um, really deep values there around it. But they haven't been that politically active until uh, at the local level. They were at the national level. Uh, Back in the nutrition fight, uh, school, school, you know, uh, child nutrition, right, child fight nutrition, twenty ten, right? Yeah, right, exactly. So they were active there, but at, at the local chapter level, they hadn't been doing that much. But now they are. They have a policy committee. Um, there are other strands of the food movement um, that uh, are increasingly becoming political. Now we know that, for instance, food chain workers have been politically active for for decades, going back to the farm worker fights of the the sixties and seventies. So. Um, but there are other elements that are coming along. And so the challenge for us is to sync up all of those. And one of the most exciting things that happened for me in recent, uh, I would say in the past years, um, last week I participated in a UC Berkeley uh, panel discussion on uh, around the food chain workers. And uh, the SEIU, SEIU union was, uh, was there, mm-hmm. um, the a policy director for the state of California. And reached out and said, look, we want to work with the food movement mm-hmm. because we have deep 
uh, links to uh, in the political process, and we have resources, and we believe that there is a real line between the food movement and the food chain worker movement. So um, that is another indication of the politicization, the possibilities of the more experienced elements of the food movement guiding the rest of us into that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, know, a, we know from our work with the mayors of L.A. and San Francisco that when you spend time with a politician and help them understand the complexities of the food system and, and the win-win solutions, they get very engaged, and then they can spark, start to speak the language, as, as, as Mayor Bloomberg did with Villaraigosa back uh, uh, you know, several years ago when the farm bill started to ramp up and they began to make statements. Yeah, we, so, were, right, um, we worked on a um, letter on behalf of 20 mayors. Yep. Well, we're not almost 20 right, mayors, I remember. right, on the farm yeah, bill. I remember when you did that. That was a huge thing. And, but I you think know, um, this is how... It's, I want to ask. I want to get your impressions on. It's really interesting because this has been such an evolution from the vote with your fork conversation, which some might say, you know, that that's very powerful if you look at consumer advocacy and the impact that it can have. But at the same time, it's not the same as raising the bar um, through a policy level. And one of the concerns has been, you know, vote with your fork requires price premium. It often entails buying things up at a price premium. Um, and so how do you see the intersection between consumers acting as eaters and consumers acting as voters? Or eaters right. acting as consumers so, and voters, maybe, is the better way to put it. <laughs> yeah, we want them to do both, right? Because, uh, you know, many folks have done that. And, and so I, I mentioned that we did this analysis a couple of years ago, in which we really did a deep systems analysis of the food system. And it became clear that when it came to the marketplace, huge changes were afoot, that the, there were entrepreneurs building businesses all through the value chain to, uh, in many different ways to get more sustainable food out there. And we also know the media has been doing a fabulous job. This radio show is, a, is an example of how deep the cultural dialogue, the discourse has become around food systems. The place that we're getting hung up is at the policy level. And that's because the 20th century food companies that control the Congress or have huge influence over the Congress um, keep the changes happening because they want to they keep winning given the current rules and public investments. So we decided that the food, that the, that the, that the policy challenge was the next big one for the food movement. And so the question is, you exactly said it, how do we get those who vote with their fork to now vote with their votes around these issues. And it's, so it's about a communication strategy and about an organiza- organizing strategy, and it has to be localized. So that's why we believe that food policy councils could be the, what we're calling the, the, the kind of hidden tsunami of the food movement, because there are 200 of them in the United States. Right. And if we can get those 200 organized, they could be a counterweight to the Midwest congressional de- delegation that controls the farm bill. And they're often able to knit together such a complex array of issues with people who have perspectives from so many different perspectives. But before, we're going to have to end, unfortunately, but I want to get a couple of thoughts from you on your own career and reflections at this point, uh, having worked on food issues from, for so long, you know, what has surprised you most, would you say, as you set down this path of food system reform? Well, actually, you know, it, the first decade or more were very tough. It was such a niche thing. And, and I, so I'm really, it began to change around 2008, I would say. Um, and it is accelerating and accelerating. So I'm extremely excited about it, and I see a merger between the climate movement, the EJ, social justice movement, and the food movement. They are coming together, and I think that's going to be the difference. So I'm, I'm actually 
super excited about all the young people coming in, guys my age, and I'm in my late mid late fifties. I'm I'm you know I got very few little time left comparatively, and but there's a whole cadre uh, of young people coming in. So I'm extremely excited, hopeful, and I believe that we are going to succeed. And the last thing I have to ask you is, I I love hearing about people's own eating and diets. So how how would you say how political is your own diet, and how does your work inform what you eat? It's very important. I uh, I shop the farmers markets. I shop from local producers. I um, only eat uh, uh, grass fed meats um, and buy most of them. Uh, most of it I buy directly from the farmers that I know. Um, I I host many gatherings in which food is at the center of the event as a way to to enliven people and celebrate life and a commitment, a deepening commitment to change. So it is core, and I cook all the time. <laughs> and that is a, a great way to relieve stress, which I'm sure you have a, a good amount of working on these policy <laughs> issues. So, um, yeah. Michael, right. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, yeah. and uh, we'll have to leave it there. We are thank going you, Kim, very much. Great, great to have you. So we are now going to turn to our final segment for the day. We're introducing a new segment. This is the Policy Made Personal audio essay, where we get a different and more individual look at how our food system and food environment impacts the world around us. Today, we're going to hear from Sophia Beltran. She's a law student at UCLA School of Law, and she recorded this essay in Los Angeles. Here she is reading the essay that she wrote. Fast food, soda, TV dinners, chips, really any processed food were things of my childhood dreams only to be experienced at the occasional sleepover or play date at a friend's house. A paper-thin budget and cultural cooking tradition were the two-pronged defenses my Colombian mother and Venezuelan father used to quell my request for these American treats. Things changed for our diets when we moved to Houston, Texas in my early teenage years. We now had access to large commercial retailers and their dazzling array of processed foods at lower prices than we'd ever seen. Our fridge and pantry were now stocked with two-liter sodas, pre-sliced lunch meat and cheeses, colorful cereals, and a gallon tub of Neapolitan ice cream in the freezer. Our traditional dinners of a hearty soup, white rice, bean salad, and grilled meats slowly morphed into meals that cut corners using processed ingredients and snacks of the same nature. I never thought about this shift in my diet until my adult years when I visited my grandparents in Bogota, Colombia. On a shopping trip, they took me to Plaza de Restrepo, an enormous outdoor market sectioned into dried goods, fruits, vegetables, meats, seafoods, herbs, cooking vessels, and flowers, all of which shocked my senses. Farmers brought countless fresh products in daily, and nothing seemed to go to waste. Here, even the poorest of Bogota could use a few coins to buy fresh vegetables and fruit, loose rice and dried beans, and maybe a small portion of meat. There was virtually no prepackaged food in sight. Afterwards, my grandparents proudly took me to a newly opened Exito, a popular grocery chain which boasted imported foods and had a feel of the American supermarket. They exclaimed over how organized, clean, and modern the store was, but it had none of the vibrancy, smells, or product quality as the open market, just rows of neatly packaged processed foods. Purchasing processed food is a sign of social status in many countries, as these products are more expensive, usually imported, and not had by all members of society. I know my family viewed access to processed foods as a testament to our rising income and stepping up the American ladder of success. Cheaper prices and greater access mean more and more Colombians are able to buy processed, convenience foods for their families. 
On the surface, this shift can be viewed as the natural result of an economic boom in a country working hard to change its image of a war drug zone. To me, this is a warning sign of widespread health issues. Colombia is now seeing a rising tide of health epidemics such as obesity, diabetes, and heart disease, mirroring health issues that are prevalent in the United States. We are now forced to evaluate the, two, the true price we pay for such cheap conveniences, and the results are not very palatable. And that is going to bring us to a close of this episode of Eating Matters on the Heritage Radio Network. That, again, was Sophia Beltran sharing her Policy Made Personal essay, and I want to thank her as well as our guest, Michael Dimmick, for joining us. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.